Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hey, it's Cindy Howes and Lizzie No from the podcast Basic Folk, honest conversations with folk musicians. Basic Folk is truly changing the game with our well-researched deep dives that aim to empower the listener while fostering the folk community. I basically am writing worship music for youth group rejects. Maternal regrets and maternal guilt are universal. I try to make things that are beautiful and that are made with like a purity of intention. You can listen to Basic Folk on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network or at basicfolk.com. Welcome to Harmonics, the podcast exploring the ways music and creativity leads us to wellness and healing. I'm Beth Bears. Hello, everybody. Boy, are you in for a big episode. My dear sister and friend, Allison Russell, whoo! This interview, one of the most moving, powerful interviews we've had so far. Also, the incredible Allison Russell is the one who wrote our original theme music for harmonics. She's absolutely magical. We've now become dear sister friends through virtual communication since uh, we can't hang out yet because of COVID, but I just absolutely adore her. Tears of rage, tears of grief from Inglewood to Nairobi. We need a super love, need a super lover. If you don't know Alison Russell, she is one half of the acclaimed Roots music duo Birds of Chicago alongside her hubby, JT Gray. She was born and raised in Quebec and she survived a traumatic childhood, teaching herself various instruments as a way to cope before eventually finding her voice within the music scene. In addition to her career with Birds of Chicago, Allison is one quarter of the Americana supergroup that I love, the Grammy-nominated Our Native Daughters with Rhiannon Giddens, Amethyst Kaya, and Layla McCalla, and is preparing to release her first solo album. She and JT live in Nashville with their daughter, who's adorable. I just want to give a serious word to our listeners. This episode does contain intense and honest descriptions of the guest's childhood trauma that may be triggering to some listeners. While there is nothing directly explicit in the content, listener discretion is advised. Without further ado, here is the lovely, magical Allison Russell. Hi, 
Beth. Nice to meet you face to face, even though we're across the country. <laughs> I know. I feel like we already know each other because I've just know. fallen madly in love with you on Instagram and your oh, music man. and everything you put out. So I, I'm just so grateful that you're doing this. And we, we've also been discussing, you'll hear on this podcast that Allison definitely has the sexiest voice of anybody oh. we've had on so far. <laughs> Every time you do like an Instagram uh, live where you're talking or like, I'm like, oh my God, she should have her own podcast. Her voice is, is so Mine's sweet. like a chipmunk and hers is, is so beautiful. So sweet of you. And thank you for not saying to you, are you sick? Do you know how often people ask me if I'm sick? Cause my, you know, it's got some gravel in there. And no, I, that's what makes almost it the first thing people ask me is, are you sick? I'm like, no. And it also makes sound. your singing voice so incredible too. I had a similar experience. I like, I interviewed Shirley MacLaine once on the phone. <gasps> oh my for, gosh. Oh, but it was terrible because I interviewed her on the phone and I was, you know, she was at her house in New Mexico and she answered the phone. And I was like, hi, this is Beth. You know, I'm doing the interview for, I think it was for a Lenny letter and Vanity Fair. And she's like, Amazing. why are you talking like that? She's oh, like, no. And I was like, um, what do you mean? She's like, your voice is so high. She's like, you need to be respected as a woman and come down in your voice. Like, actually, after I thought about it, I was like, huh. Like, cause when I, I was like, that's very interesting that you would say that. I still talk like this because it's my voice, but it's your voice. And that's pretty outrageous. Surely. I Surely. Mean, I mean, but on. I still love her because then <laughs> it like was this She's beautiful an interview. Yeah. About her like doing the El Camino <laughs> trail by herself. And I was like, how are you like a woman like who's won all these Oscars and you're alone out there doing that El Camino? And she was like, Beth, sometimes you need to choose love over fear. Like her overarching, like was amazing. Was amazing. Yeah. But someone so I has feel you. someone said that to her, right? Don't you think? The voice. Somebody thing? said Definitely. that to her, and it and it stuck, you know. And and it and she was just accidentally paying for that trauma. I think, especially you know? her generation too. About yeah. you know, I mean, not that you know, women have come that much farther, but at least yeah. you know a little bit. I bet to be respected and to not exactly. be. Yeah, that's really interesting. Not feel like you have to change yourself to be accepted. You're right. not acceptable. You have to change. You know? We and don't. Was, we don't. We do not. No, we can we own our authenticity. Uni- exactly. We are uniquely ourselves. There are. There is. We are the only ones of ourselves. You know. Amen. This is, a, this is our strength. This is Absolutely. part of the beautiful human tapestry. We can't damp it down. Totally. How are you doing? How are you holding up? I feel like we have to ask everybody that during these crazy times. And I, I have for the most part, um, you know, I've been, I think it's been a roller coaster for, for me as it has been for everyone. Um, for the most part, I've been feeling cautiously hopeful as I see these kind of coalitions and conversations happening that I couldn't have imagined happening even a year ago. Um, so that's been really, really hopeful to see just kind of this powerful nexus of, um, intersectionality, you know, of the black community, the indigenous community, other people of color, white allies, um, the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just really seeing a kind of a powerful convergence that's happening and, you know, all of our beautiful diversity and the, it's really an, it's starting, you know, racial, racial justice is what's tipped the scales right now, sort of 
the tipping point toward a critical mass for change, but it's really an anti-bigotry movement, right? It's not, it's not just about the politics of skin color, right? It's, it's an anti-bigotry movement. And so that seeing kind of the, just these unprecedented conversations, even something as seemingly simple, but kind of shocking as like the Opry of all institutions, being able to say black lives matter. When five years ago, when Trayvon was killed, those women were being called terrorists by the vast majority of the mainstream, you know? So we have, we, there has been, there has been real change already that's easy for us to overlook because we're just in the midst of it, you know? But so those things are really giving me hope. Um, but I also, at the same time, you know, right before we got on this call, um, my friend Rhiannon Giddens had posted something and I was going to look and see what it was. And as I'm scrolling through, I saw this video footage of a gentleman in a wheelchair being brutalized by police. And it was so, you know, I, I sort of make a point not to ever watch any of the videos, like the George Floyd video that sparked this latest kind of momentum for the movement that has been ongoing for the last 400 years, but the latest momentum. Um, I'd never watched that video. I never want to watch it. I've read about it, of course, but I just, you know, that's a personal choice of I don't want to watch fellow black people being brutalized. I know it's happening. It's happened to me, but watching it over and over again, feels it feeds into the problem in that, that's origin. And I understand, I understand that the fact that there was video is what created that kind of critical mass of awareness of tipping point of people that have never experienced racism directly being shocked into action, you know, and I, I understand that, but at the same time, I think about his family and his daughter and his mm -hmm. mom, and I just don't want to watch it. And so it was a bit of a shock today as I was scrolling through and I saw this footage of this man being brutalized, not killed, mind you, but brutalized. And I just, that was like right before we got on together. Uh, so I had this moment of just, you know, the weight of it hitting me and um, the insidiousness of white supremacy. I mean, some of these policemen who are brutalizing this man were also black. You know, it's not, it's, it goes so deep in the kind of the, the twisting of one's spirit, you know, mm. the self-hatred. And when you don't face it or work through it, when you're in an environment like a police force where that is, that is the reigning ideology. And even if you are a police officer of color or, um, you know, non-heteronormative or any of these things, the reigning culture is to consider anything that's not white, hetero, male, lesser than, right? And this, this dehumanizing, it's just dehumanizing on all sides. And, um, and it was just kind of like coming across that it was, it just threw me for an emotional loop, you know, but I doesn't shake, it doesn't shake my hope. I still feel hopeful, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be an easy road ahead for any of us, you know? And I think this time of introspection is forcing people, you know, we're all having to sit with our own discomfort about various things. I, I kind of feel like it's everybody, the whole world with the pandemic is having the enforced time to go through stages of grief, essentially, and everybody's kind of at a different place along that 
that journey. You know, some people are still in full on denial and anger. Mm-hmm. Other people are, you know, in acceptance. Um, it's, it's just an interesting thing when, you know, we have so many billion people on the planet and everybody's going through these stages of grief at different times. And, and there's a lot of, there's just obviously a lot of conflict that is happening now that has always happened. But, um, I do know, I know for a fact that we are on a long arc. Who, who said this? I'm I'm quoting this and I, and I can't remember who originated it, but it may have been, in fact, I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That we are on a long arc toward peace and justice and equality but it's long and it's slow. And so we're just kind of trying to, each of us is just trying to bend that arc a little faster and further, you know, toward the beautiful day when we actually have equality, you know. And, um, and we have come a lot, we have come a long way, you know, but there's a long way to go. So that's a really long-winded answer. I'm sorry, I just started rambling. Oh, <laughs> I, just started. I, I loved it so much. Oh, I was like yeah. crying. I felt hopeful. I, <laughs> I'm so moved by you already. God, Allison, you're just, you're so grounded and um, beyond intelligent. There's like such a grace and a heart and a love to you. I hope everybody watching, I wish you could see mm-hmm. Allison speak, but you, you have such a gift, not only musically, but just your eloquence and your hope. I mean, oh, you just helped give me hope because I oh. honestly have been having trouble. Like it's, it's hard, especially scrolling through and seeing, and it's I'm hard. like you, I have a really difficult time watching it. I did yeah. not watch the George Floyd yeah. because I knew. And you don't have to. You can read about it, right? Nobody has to watch it. It makes me feel better you that you said about it's okay it. because yeah. I felt guilty for not watching yeah. it, you know? But my heart, the crying out for mom and oh. Yeah. But uh, what do you do? Because you just seem like you're so grounded in the hope and that's giving me a lot of hope. But what do you do when you, your body has like that physical reaction that you had today. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes it like, I don't know how you move past it or if you have practices or whatever, because sometimes for me, it's like debilitating and it's like the, for yeah. me, it, it manifests as anxiety um, in yeah. my chest and my body and that heightened shakiness. So yeah. Is it just holding on to the idea of hope? I mean, there are practical, there are physical and practical things that I will sometimes do. Um, and it varies lately. It's been a lot of writing, a lot of writing poetry, which is something I kind of haven't done in years because I've been so focused on songwriting. And of course, songwriting is a kind of a poetry as you know, but, um, lately it's been coming out a lot as poetry that is not wedded to a melody. Mm. Um, and just writing, just writing. I've been writing a lot about my own past because, everything that's kind of happening in the macrocosm right now, I sort of went through a version of it in my own little microcosm. Like my, um, my history was having my childhood kind of, um, kidnapped and hijacked and crushed by white supremacism, essentially. Um, which manifested in my case as, you know, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse. Um, my mom was a baby when she had me, you know, she was, 
Uh, she's a Scottish a Canadian, a Canadian of Scottish descent, so she is a white lady. She was a teenager um, when she got pregnant. My my biological father is from Grenada, which is in the West Indies. It's just sort of north of Trinidad and Tobago. But he had been studying at the same high school, so they were both babies. You know, they had a brief high school fling. She got knocked up. He was already back in Grenada. He'd just been there sort of briefly to study in Montreal, which is where um, I, I'm from. And she had the kind of, I sort of can't imagine what it was like for her. You know, she had been this middle class, upper middle class girl, really. Both of my maternal grandparents were professors. You know, she had come from Saskatchewan. And when my grandma got a fellowship at McGill, she moved the whole family. My mom was the second youngest of five kids. And they kind of just got to Montreal and their family structure fell apart. You know, my grandfather started having lots of affairs and my grandmother was working on her PhD and the kids were just, you know, the older ones were left to watch over the younger ones and none of them, they were all having major culture shock coming from a very homogenous, you know, all European descent prairie town, Saskatoon at the time, you know, in the, in the seventies was very homogenous. It still is. It's still when I go to, you know, there's a few basketball players now that they've brought, that they've imported from other places, but you know, it's, it's, it's a white town and, and don't get, I love Saskatoon, but it's the kind of thing like where I go to, when I go, there's a town called Eston, which is where my grandpa, my grandma's parents had a farm just outside of Eston. And when I go to visit my great uncle there or aunt, you know, and stopping at the bank, they're like, oh, you're from away. Where are you from? You know, because I'm the only black person in town. You're so. like, I'm not from away. Yeah. I'd say that actually my family's farm is just down the road. And they're like, oh, really? You know, Aww. it's just shocking. <laughs> but anyway, that's a whole digression. But so they, you know, they came to Montreal. They're, she's a very young teen. The eldest ones are not much older. And they're just on their own in this big city. They go to an urban high school where they're part of a white minority. Suddenly they're a visible minority at this school. You know, they've never experienced that. And it was just, they just kind of fell apart. And my mom, you know, had a lot of challenges kind of navigating social situations anyway. My mom was undiagnosed at that time, but my birth was sort of the catalyst for the onset of her very severe schizophrenia and it was untreated. It was, you know, her parents were in denial that there was anything going on that she might need extra help. They were going through a divorce. They kind of said, well, if you're going to have this baby, you can't live with us and we're getting divorced and we're selling the house anyway. So, you know, she winds up in this home for, for fallen girls, basically in Catholic Quebec, you know, in, in the early eighties and, it was just, I can't imagine what that was like. She essentially like lost her white privilege because not only is she an unwed teen mother, she's having a black baby. You know, this was like not, not cool in Quebec in the early eighties. You know, this was not celebrated. And, um, you know, the only times there's, there's this funny thing when people find out I'm from Canada and particularly at this time of unrest in this country, there's this, oh, you guys are, you guys have it figured out. I mean, are, are you going to move back north? Is this, it's so terrible here. It's so much better there. 
And I have to break the news to them that no, colonialism is alive <laughs> and well in Canada too. Really, really terrifying. And, and rather than the Black community being the most vulnerable, it's our Indigenous community. It's the missing and murdered Indigenous women oh, and girls yes. is horrific. It's, it's genocidal levels and it's almost completely unaddressed not only unaddressed by law enforcement, but some of it is being perpetrated by law enforcement. Right. So it's, you know, and, and there's a ton of, um, anti-black sentiment as well. You know, I, the first time I was called the N word, well, was in my family, <laughs> but oh, anyway, God. uh, but by strangers was in Quebec. The first time I was spat on in the street was in Quebec. The first time I was refused bathroom service was in Hannah, Alberta. I mean, this is happening in Canada, you know, and um, these things are not, you know, we want to, we always want to see, oh, that per they're, they're worse than we are. We're, but that's not, that doesn't serve anybody. The fact is there is a white supremacist insidious ideology, which has affected the globe because of colonialism and conquest. And we all have to deal with that fallout. We all have to examine it. All of our minds have been colonized. You know, I've, mine certainly has. I had, you know, my, my mother's family who were trying to be, um, you know, more open and more accepting of other cultures, but who just couldn't help but have implicit bias and, and white supremacy interwoven into their ideologies. And then she married... Um, after I was born and she had her kind of first psychotic break, I was removed by um, child protection services uh. and I was in foster care for about four years. And in that time she met and married uh, an ex, an expat American, white American from uh, Southern Indiana, the town that he grew up in up until the seventies, late seventies had laws on the books that a person of, you know, a black person or any person of color could not stay overnight in the town. It was one of these sundown towns. So that's the environment that he grew up in. And his mother was so virulently racist that um, we only went to visit his parents once when I was 12. And I'm sort of skipping ahead, but, and his mother said the N word probably 20 times within me walking in the door. I was 12. And it got, it was so intense that it was clear I could not stay there with the rest of the family. And by that time I had my little brother, Greg, you know, my mom and my adoptive father. And I went and stayed at his brother's house because I couldn't stay there. His mother was that, the racism was that virulent and that intense. She couldn't stand to have me, you know, saying she could smell me, saying, oh calling me God. the N word. Allison. Didn't I know how to cook yet? You know, all of this stuff. And that was, you know, so it's like, there I am, a, a a black mixed heritage child in Canada and the civil war, the unhealed wounds, the gaping bleeding wounds from the civil war that we're all still dealing with, not just in this country, but everywhere because America is a colonial power now itself. Right. Um, that reached out to touch my life and change my life forever. Um, and harm me, you know, from, from across the border, from across, you know, so he marries my mom, they go to court, they get me back, he adopts me and proceeds to sexually abuse me for the next oh. 10 years, you know. And I really think 
I think I'm, I don't know for sure. Cause I can never know for sure, but I think I was the first child that he crossed that line with physically. Unfortunately, not the last, which is what helped me. I eventually charged him and he did go to jail for a brief, he had a, a light sentence. Um, mm. And the only reason I was able to do that was that two of the other girls that he had molested were willing to come forward. Um, anyhow, that's further down the line with the story. But so he marries my mom, he adopts me, proceeds to abuse me. And I think he was able to cross that final sort of taboo line because in his mind for his whole life, I was three fifths of a human, right? I'm, I'm not equal. I'm not, I, I, he owned me. He went to court. He paid for the lawyer. He really felt that he owned me. I really think that. And I think that's what allowed him to cross that line. I mean, I'm sure he'd had ideation and all the rest of it. I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his mom abused him. And I know that this was a cycle of abuse repeating, but the inherent white supremacy that infects all of our cultures globally pretty much contributed to that, you know, again, without a shadow of a doubt. And um, it's just a really interesting, he, it was quite severe, like the physical stuff, obviously awful, but your body heals eventually. The, the more, pernicious and poisonous part of it was the constant like psychological twisting and abuse. And it was, it was very comprehensive. He would, I mean, it was serious indoctrination. He would tell me, you know, that black people were culturally inferior. There hadn't been proper education after emancipation, that black culture was just an abomination that I was lucky to be raised by him mm. so that some of his whiteness could help me rise above my natural inferiority. I mean, it was, it was every single day, it, you know, and, and just, and like the, the petty things too, like, Oh, too bad. Your hair is like that. You would have been pretty if it wasn't for your hair or your skin is so dark and you shouldn't have such dark skin when you have a white mom, you know, I mean, on and on and on and on, but it would go, he would, it would go so far as we would play court. You know, what will you say if they ask you what we use every day? Indoctrination, brainwashing, brainwashing, indoctrination. And, um, what was some of the other stuff? He would find articles. That was the most dastardly. He would find these articles and they were plentiful. I'm sad to say cases where women had come forward to talk about being abused, talk about sexual abuse or rape, and that time and time again, they were not believed. Time and time again, they were dragged through the mud and vilified and victim, victim blamed. He would find these articles and he would read them to me like, it's, you have, no one's ever going to believe you. No one's ever going to believe you. I'm your savior. Mm. You know, you're so lucky to have me, this kind of, you know, and then abuse and torture and nightly rape sort of thing. And, um, he could do that. He could do it. It's hard to do those things, I think, actually. But he could do it because to him, I wasn't human. And I wasn't human to him because the Constitution of the United States had it written into the Constitution that Black people were three-fifths of a human being. Mm. Like, that our lot was to serve in whatever way was desired, you know? <laughs> I mean, this is like, it's, it, it's not gone, you know, and I, I always find it interesting when people sort of want to 
generally white people, oh, that's the past and I'm not to blame and blah, blah. And no one's saying you're to blame. We are all living with this fallout, right? We're all living with it. We're all trying to deprogram. We're all trying to decolonize our minds. We're often blind to the iniquities that exist purely based on the politics of skin color. And now we're in this moment where we are all called upon to really sit in the discomfort. We've been given the time. This virus, mm. this pandemic has given us the time to process some of this. It's heavy, painful stuff. And I, I just have so much admiration and respect for the people who were unaware, who mm. really, truly, you know, had the privilege of moving through the world unaware that this was still happening, mm. that are now sitting with all of it and processing and starting the path of self-education and outreach and allyship and healing. Like I have great respect for those people. I, I almost feel this grief for them in this weird way of you thought the world was so much better than it was. I'm sorry <laughs> that it's not. I didn't have the luxury of thinking it was better than it was because of my circumstances and my color and what happened to me in my childhood. It's, it's a pandemic that dwarfs COVID-19. It's the pandemic of abuse, of bigotry and abuse. And I link those two things. They go together. Absolutely. You know, um, that's, that's the most deadly pandemic we're facing, really. And, um, and this COVID-19 pandemic, strangely, is helping us do that. You know, the result of being locked down with our thoughts and having to do the inner work, which is so much, as we all know, can't do the outer work without doing the inner work. You've been so eloquent about that. I so appreciate, I watched your, your interview with the Brothers Corin the other day, and I was so moved I, I have such deep appreciation for you talking about mental health issues, destigmatizing that, right? I mean, that's another, I think about that, my, the harm of my childhood, so much of it was that nobody was supporting my mother. Right. Nobody was supporting this young girl who was mentally ill and no one was reaching out to her to help her, you know? And then she was p punished, like, you're bad. You got pregnant. You got pregnant with a black child and you know, and, and we don't talk about mental health and that's a shameful thing. It was like shame, 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 not talking about anything, not having any empathy, love, compassion, you know, for her, she was just failed by, by her family, by the system. And then she in turn failed me. How could she not, you know? And yeah. I feel you on the social media in the sense that um, I felt the same way. You know, this is a platform to, we have to do it. We're promoting our art, which is just a part of the landscape now. And then during this pandemic, like you just said, I was alone with my thoughts. And I was like, you know, people write things. I'm sure you get this too, where it's like, God, your life looks so great. Or, you know, and I was like, you know, it's time to start being honest about yeah. my own anxiety, especially at a time with the global pandemic and all of everything, the movements, everything that's happening, the, the collective anxiety uh, is out of control and it's suicide rates are going up and all of those things. Yeah. And so for me, it was more a matter of like, there's no choice, like you have to do this. Yeah. Um, but I think, and this probably goes back to like, what you're saying with colonization and just silencing of, of women in general too. It's like, there's so much shame behind talking about 
our feelings and our yes. truth because we've been silenced for so long. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I just want to thank you for and commend you for is that you did go to court against the, the pedophile because, you know, I, I've worked a lot with sexual assault survivors and horses. My sister's a survivor and we started a program and one of the things that's been so um, heart-wrenchingly difficult for me is the amount of rape kits that are going unused because women are so scared to use their voices. And it's so terrifying, the court system and everything about it. I mean, I can't even imagine a child. I've worked with Gail, who runs the Rape Foundation in Los Angeles, actually has programs for uh, children um, who have been sexually abused to come practice in court with um, therapists to come together. But just for everybody out there listening, survivor or not, you um, you just seem like you've uh, you've owned your voice in a way that I think we can all follow and try to um, emulate. How how were you able to? I mean, I, I guess that's a loaded so, question. But. No, it's not loaded. It's a great question, and what you're saying, I've thought about so much, and I need to clarify something. I wasn't a child when I charged him. It took me a long time. So I left home at 15. There there were a few, there were a couple of pivotal things that happened. My grandmother, um, my Scottish grandmother started to suffer from early onset Alzheimer's when I was about 14. And she was still at home at the beginning of that. And it meant that I could I was allowed to go over there more to help out with her. And so I suddenly had a little bit of space from him because he was literally in my bed every night when I was home. And then he, the second thing that happened is he had two children from a previous marriage um, who were adults when I was a child. And his eldest son, my adoptive brother, um, had got married young, had two kids. He and his wife were having issues. The grandkids, my niece and adoptive adoptive niece and nephew came to live with us when they were uh, two and seven months respectively. And I became, I, I was, by that point, I was sort of agoraphobic. That was, I, I dropped out of school when basically like when my peers were going through normal, um, sexual awareness and, and evolution and development, that's when the kind of double thing stopped working for me when it was like, I felt so destroyed and broken and worthless, you know, and I couldn't face, you know, being around little Joey who had a crush on me or, you know, I just couldn't handle it. It was like the the, the reality of what my life had been, you know, of, a, of being my own father's like plaything, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't when, when all of my peers were going through their just normal, like my first kiss, my first, you know, those things, I just, it was like, crushing. I just couldn't even, you you know, there's children have this protective double think, which allowed me to survive as long as I did, you know, and then it was gone and I became, you know, very self-destructive. I stopped eating and I was drinking powdered lead. I mean, I was trying to, you know, I was toying with trying to die. And then the kids came, my grandma got sick and then the kids came to live with us and they needed me and they were so 
starved for love and affection. Like they would, they were in my bed every night and he wasn't for the first time in my life. And I was protecting them and nurturing them. You know, I was 14, but suddenly it, like it was like a switch that flicked. Where I was like, what's happening to me is so wrong. And if anyone did this to them, I would want to kill them, you know, and just being able to say that in my, because I loved my father, right? That's mm-hmm. the other part of it. Children are, are, it's like dependence and love. What's the line between that? I don't even know. I loved him. He was the only adult in my life who talked to me, you know, who read books with me other than my grandma. And I didn't get to see her very often because of course he limited my contact with the outside world. But you know, there's, he was an evil, terrifying monster at night. And then in the daytime, you know, played the loving father. So, and, and I was starved for any kind of love or affection. You know, my mom was, when I came back from foster care was just like gone. Like she was shut off from me. And then when my little, I have a little brother, Greg, who was born when I was six and a half. And, um, that was, he was the, like one of the joys, is one of the joys of my world. He's a man now, he's a dad now, he's, you know, but um, he's still my baby brother always. So that that was the beginning really, was Greg was, our parents were so checked out and such maniacs, I had to really be there for him. And then when the kids came, I had to rise to, you know, I had to not die because they needed me. So that gave me the strength to when they eventually went back to live with their parents. Um, it was just, just before I turned 15, I left, I left, I just left. It was this terrible scene when I left where I screamed at my mother, everything that was happening that I knew she knew, but pretended not to know, you know, and she cast me out and it was this horrible scene. It was awful because my baby brother was still there. You know, I was barely 15. He was seven. I, we just couldn't, or he was eight at the time. We, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't care for him yet then. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was lucky, like Montreal is sort of a 24 hour city in the way that New York is in a smaller way, but there were, you know, I would go stay. There was this one cafe, the Croissant Royale. And I would, there were always like McGill poli sci students in there playing chess late at night. And I would go and play chess all night in this cafe and then go to my alternative school and sleep in the student lounge for a couple of hours in the morning and then go to my classes and pretended everything was normal. And I did this for a while and I had an amazing girlfriend who would let me, I'd climb in through her basement window and she would let me stay with her. And, you know, I kind of eked my way through high school and then I, I, had a ride and a place to stay with my um, maternal uncle, David, in Vancouver. And I just left because my, as my, my adoptive father sort of continued to stalk and harass me around the city. And I just finally, I ran all the way from Montreal to Vancouver, which for those of you unfamiliar with Canadian geography, it's Montreal's in the East and Vancouver's as far West as you can go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I went as far West as I could. Yeah. It's like LA and New York. (laughs) And and that's where music found me. I was just about to say, when did that find you? Because I know it found you because your soul is yeah. alive in your music. I mean, and it was always, I mean, music was always a thing. Like my, my mom's side, my mom's people, the Scottish side are very, very musical. She's a beautiful piano player. Some of my only non-traumatic memories with my mom are when she would be 
playing piano, just lost in it. And I would crawl underneath it. I would crawl under the piano and just listen to her, you know, and watch her feet on the pedals and listen to this beautiful music, you know, and, and that was where I could feel connected in some way, even though she didn't know I was there, you know? So I go to Vancouver, I start playing music, I get wrapped up in the music community there. I have my, my mom's older sister, Janet, is a songwriter in Vancouver at that time. And she starts welcoming me into her kind of folky songwriting circle. And I am, it's the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to me. You know, and I get hired to sing the national, the Canadian national anthem in French and English, because I was bilingual. I am bilingual. Um, for the new democratic the the new democratic party convention they wanted to have the national anthem sung in both languages so they paid me $350 to sing this song yes. I, I couldn't you know 17 i was like i can't believe it it's probably the most i've ever been played paid to sing a song but um it was you know it was this revelation that people could write their own songs and people could play music because another element of my adoptive father's um sort of tyranny was musical. He would only allow music, pretty much Baroque, Romantic era, classical music was it, with the exception of, and this is, these are weird, three weird exceptions, Elvis, the Kingston Trio, and Boney M. <laughs> Those were the three, <laughs> except modern, wow. that was the modern music I had wow. been exposed to when I got to, you know, and it like a little bit seeped through at school, like on school radio. Okay. You know, yeah. I knew like, are you down with OPP? Yeah, you know me. Like I knew a few <laughs> pop culture songs had filtered through, but I would get, I remember, this is, a, I mean, it's sad, but also kind of funny. My aunt Janet had sent me a tape of Lorena McKennett, who is this Canadian, beautiful Canadian Celtic singer. It is not uh, the music of rebellion. <laughs> and I, I was listening to this Lorena McKennett tape and I, my adoptive father was so infuriated that I was, you know, he hit me over it. There was like physical punishment to do with me listening to this for Celtic for music Cel for Celtic music <laughs> Canadian you know, Celtic Canadian yeah Celtic wow because that just wasn't you know wasn't I'm one so of his glad accepted it didn't things. taint it no. didn't taint music for you I'm no, so glad that it no, became no. your was the banjo the first no instrument you grabbed not oh. at all no because I just didn't I just and first I was totally stuck in the singer what I call the singer's ghetto where when people right. are like, are you a musician? You're like, yeah, I sing. You're like, oh, you're a singer. <laughs> singer yeah. You're not a musician, you know? So I was in the singer's ghetto for a hot minute there. And, but I was writing so much. Um, and I would have to go to my friend, Trish Klein, who was, she was in a band called the Begid Tanyas at that time. And I would go to her and say, can you help me figure out the chords? And we started jamming together. And the clarinet was actually my first instrument because I've always, I've always loved the sound of the clarinet. I, a huge Benny Goodman fan and Sidney Bechet fan and Eric Dolphy's bass clarinet music fan. And um, so I just got one at a pawn shop in Vancouver wow. and started playing because I wanted to be able to jam. And Trish at the time was teaching herself banjo. Wow. And I was like, oh, well, I'll play clarinet. We can do like a Dixieland thing, which we never did because we just wrote a bunch of songs and we didn't sound like that. And we didn't have the chops, frankly, yet. <laughs> Um, but we were just writing songs and learning and watershedding together. And, and eventually we formed a group together called Poe Girl. That was my first yes. band. And we did a ton of traveling and I kind of never looked back after that. It was like, this is, and I, and I feel, uh, very grateful to my early bandmates and early 
people that came to our shows for being so forgiving as I learned clarinet on stage. Oh, wow. <laughs> horrifying, you know, but, but they were patient. And, and then I started playing some guitar and then I realized I was much more drawn to the banjo. And, you know, I think Trish gave me my first couple of, showed me my first couple chords and I've been playing you know, ever since then, but you said on your, uh, Instagram live, uh, I don't, I think it was like maybe a week ago, but you were, it was a beautiful Instagram live, but at the end you were talking about, which I didn't know. I knew banjo had, obviously I knew the African roots, but you yeah. said something about Haitian roots and yes. the banjo and you sang this beautiful lullaby that you sing to your daughter, but yes. which I love. Um, but Aww. what, what, are, what is the history with Haiti? So the first known banjo that we recognize as a banjo, like the modern, you know, because of course it comes from a conting, it comes from various African lutes, essentially, that came that, that, and I think about the power of this and it, we, we have this, we have this erroneous tendency to kind of lump all enslaved people. Like they were all from Africa, this small country. No, they were from Africa, this vast continent full of many cultures, languages, countries. A lot of the people on the ships wouldn't have been able to even speak to each other. You know, right. they didn't have a common language necessarily. There were Fulani, there were Yoruba, there were, there were all of these different cultures and people being brutalized and dehumanized and literally shackled together where they had to, they had to move as one if they were going to move. They had to, and what did all of these disparate people from different parts of the continent of Africa, different cultures bring, they brought these instruments, these early ancestors of the banjo. And they, they created a culture of resistance and joy through being this horrific experience of being brutalized and enslaved. They created this culture of resistance through the banjo, through this uh, making an amalgam with what they had at hand of these instruments that... Mm were th are thousands and thousands of years old by this time, right? That they're being brought to America and the Caribbean. More importantly, the Caribbean is the gateway, right? At that right. time. And the, for the oldest known banjo was found in Haiti. And there, if there's an incredible, um, I need to, I need to, to give a salute to my dear friend, Laurent Dubois, who is a professor at Duke university. He, it has studied the banjo deeply, the history of the banjo, he, the history of Haiti deeply. He's originally from Belgium himself, but he wrote an incredible book that I think you would love because I know yes. you're on this whole banjo journey and it's called The Banjo, America's African Instrument. Oh, and it is yes. such I'm a writing deep, it down right deep, now. deep work. It's incredible. Um, and he really goes in depth of, you know, the timeline and what's happening and how this instrument becomes the voice for so many different people and cultures and what they have in common is that they are being dehumanized enslaved and oppressed but they are not just submitting to that they're keeping language alive cultural creole creole is this powerful powerful thing of uniting the all of these different languages and the oppressors languages and making something new like Haitian Creole is so deep and my bandmate my sister and our native daughters Layla McCalla can speak to that much more eloquently because she has as an adult learned Creole like that's her that's her family's heritage wow. but her parents of course wanted their children to assimilate here and they didn't teach them Creole but she has taken it upon herself to learn cool. and she's incredible I mean she's incredible and she um wrote this multidisciplinary piece 
there, there are music elements, visual elements, documentary elements, dance elements, and it's called Breaking the Thermometer to Hide the Fever. It came, she debuted it at Duke University in early March, right before the walls came down of this pandemic. And I was lucky enough that I got to go there and witness and experience that. And it's, it, by the way, it's going to have more incarnations. You know, I, it's, I'm, Wow. What exactly is still yet to be announced, but it will have more incarnations. And I can't, it is one of the most powerful things I've seen. Um, and it, and it coalesced something in my mind that I've understood, but that I've understood more now since, you know, Layla and I becoming sisters in music and in life, the, the influence of Haiti is vast mm-hmm. on New Orleans. New Orleans culture is that is, you know, I mean, the people will, will, historians can argue what percentage, but it is very deeply, deeply, deeply influenced by Haiti. And of course, by the Acadians who came down from Acadie in Canada when they, when the French lost to the English up there. So there's these Canadian influences, Acadie, like Cajun, what becomes Cajun, but was these Acadiens to begin with, the Acadians, they come down, Haitians, all of this culture is mixing and melding. And we, you know, rock and roll doesn't exist without that. Jazz doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Blues doesn't exist. Country doesn't exist. Pop music doesn't exist. All of this music that we are all influenced by, touched by, that comes from this melting pot. And Haiti is at the heart of that. And it is also the only enslaved colony that frees itself, mm-hmm. you know? And how powerful is that? And I just think the first banjo being there and the banjo is an instrument of resistance. And what I was going to say at Duke University, they acquired this incredible painting and I'm, I, it's slipping my mind who the, the painter is, but it's, it was a first person, the man was there. He was there as the revolution was happening and he's made a painting of it, you know, of the, of the ultimate victory of the enslaved troops under Toussaint. And in the corner is a man playing banjo, a black man playing banjo in this painting, you know, and it's like, there it is, there it is. Um, it's such a powerful, I I can't wait for you to read the book and then we can, oh. we can have a book club. Oh my God, can we please we can have, have a book yes, club? I'm totally serious. Club it makes it. so much sense what you're oh. saying because, um, it's become, I think I was telling you on Instagram, like it's a really difficult instrument and I am like such a beginner, <laughs> but at night I've been doing this thing. I was just telling my husband this morning, I'm finding that it's almost like a mantra before bed to play it. And sometimes I'll light like a candle and like dim the lights and play. And maybe too, cause it sits, well, I guess guitar does too, but it sits so close to your stomach and your heart. Yeah. And yeah. I've always loved the sound. I've thought it's such like an earthly mantra sound, especially claw hammer yeah. that, that yeah. you play and that I'm learning. It, it's so beautiful yeah. that I, it makes so much sense. The roots and the history and that you makes so much it. sense why it's still alive. You feel mm-hmm. it. Oh, I can't wait to do this book club. <laughs> no, I know. Me too. Like, yes. I have all the time in the world for a book club know, because yes. acting wise, I don't know when we're going back to work. I so. know. Well, it's the same. We're all in the same boat. All of us who are essentially gig workers, you know, whether it's yes, on the of set course. or in yes. a venue, you're, it's a bunch of people together. That's how we do our job. And so that has been a really strange thing to navigate, right? Like, how do we do our job now? Right. And I just think this is so, but it's 
this necessity is the mother of invention. You're starting this podcast. Amy yes. was sharing with me that you guys had talked about you know, wanting to do this for a long time. And now there's the opportunity to do it. And who knows what's going to grow out of it. I mean, that's, I'm trying to, I'm really trying to stay centered in this is not the worst thing that's ever happened. Right. It's not, not by a long shot. You know, our ancestors, ancestors have gone through yeah. so much worse. We can do this. Mm -hmm. We can do it. We're going to be, it's, it's hard. I'm not going to pretend it's not hard, but we can do it and we can get through it and we are going to get through it. We are going to be on the other side of this lockdown eventually, you know, and I was really encouraged. I, I was reading about um, that company Moderna that has a, a trial vaccine and they're going into phase three with a trial. So that's fingers crossed, uh. um, you know, that that kind of can work. But, you know, even if it doesn't, eventually we are going to reach herd immunity and life will, to some extent, it won't, I, this is the thing. I don't think any of us actually wants to go back to the old normal. Right. I think there is this sense of hope that we can make changes, that we have this time to strategize, to think, to be introspective, to be on, to do the inner work so that we can do more intentional outer work together mm -hmm. um, with less conflict, hopefully, you know, and, and really have the time to intentionally rebuild. What do we want to see? What do we want to change? What was really not working? What was really toxic before? What can we fix? There are things we can fix, you know, and we, we have, I mean, that is one thing. Humans are endlessly inventive. It is our gift. And we also have a superpower of empathy when we choose to exercise it. It's a superpower yes. and it's a muscle. Like it does take exercise and things that help exercise our empathy, the arts, all of the mm. arts, music, painting, sculpting, plays, movies, TV, all of these things, reading stories, reading books, reading these things build our empathy. They, they, they help us be better, literally help us be better people, be more compassionate people, be more open people, connect with each other with less resistance and defensiveness you know? Absolutely. And I believe that in every fact, audiobooks, in all of it, podcasts, podcasts, you know, these, are, <laughs> these all build empathy and empathy is our superpower. And I believe when we are actually using all the human brains, all the incredible diverse human, because I think about this, essentially more than half the population is shut out from a lot of decision-making. Oh, we, I was just and, reading a book called The Source about the human brain. And I, I was learning that we know more about space than we do about our own brains. Like, yes. And the neuroscience is changing every hour. And every the, hour. the ability that we have to talk about empathy, the ability we have to create new mirror neurons and pathways to build our empathy and to grow. And you're right. This is giving us, you're so right. This is giving us the time to slow down, to be introspective, to literally change our brain and grow. To change our brain. From a scientific Yes, standpoint. scientific person. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. To change the neural pathways. Yes. We can change our neural pathways. We have the power to do this. How incredible is that? Yeah. How, how, how sort of divine being like, do you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. if there is... And I'm a, you know, I'm not a religious, I'm a hopeful agnostic is how I would describe myself. Okay. Yeah. And I have deep respect for, for spiritual people, for religious people, um, you know, particularly when it's centered in empathy and compassion and 
you know, not condemning of others for having yes. different views, but, um, I have deep respect for that, but I, I would categorize myself as a hopeful agnostic, but when I feel closest to magic mm. or divinity or the great creative mystery is when I'm bound up in a particularly transporting art, whether it's same here, you know, singing or playing or, and I, I really experienced that in community. There's a reason I've never made a solo record up till now. I I've been very centered in collaboration and the whole, you know, being a part that helps contribute to a whole that's greater than the sum of us. And I, I love that. I, it's magical to me. Um, and I'm lucky enough to be quarantined with my husband, who is a beautiful musician and uh, JT Nero. We have a band called Birds of Chicago together. My sister, Anna Teixeira, she and I used to be in Poe Girl together. And so we all play together. And then our dear um, chosen sister, Yola, who is yes. quarantining here with us. And, you know, so we've all been playing on each other's God, songs what a dream each songs <laughs> and, you know, yeah, learning like Etta James songs and singing wow. them together. And, you know, like just, that's been so healing. Our daughter just started kicking it on the drums out of nowhere because of Yola, Yola was in the music room practicing and Ida just sat down. She's just, she's six now. She sat down and just started laying down a backbeat. I could Whoa. not believe we were all like, Okay, oh don't don't make a big deal. Don't make a big deal. Just film it surreptitiously. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, don't Aww. scare her away. Don't scare, you know, and not that we're not pressing anything on her, but she's so, she's been really getting into her songwriting voice and making these little videos, like with her, you know, her little tablet thing and singing and doing the routines and plays. Like I just, there's this creativity has come out of her. And of course this is because she has no children to play right. with. She's an only child. You know, I feel so bad. Never have I felt so bad. <laughs> She's an only child. We were like, we were so close to adopting a dog, but we're, we're all afraid of what happens when it starts up again and we're all on the road with a vengeance to make up for this. I have the same problem about having a child because I have a dog and we have two horses. So I'm like, but will a child compromise my dog and horse time (laughs) or (laughs) no, they will, it will all, they will all enhance each other. The dogs and the horses will love your, by the way, horse riding as therapy. Yeah. Brilliant. It's, it's somatic. Particularly for sexual trauma. Brilliant. That's, that makes so much sense to me. And I am, I was like, (gasps) when you said, and I'm so, I'm so sorry for that. Your sisters experienced that, but so many of us have. So many women. How empowering that she's doing that now. How empowering. But the horses, it's a similar thing. I find what you're saying, sort of spirituality, God, great spirit, collective unconscious, whatever the Tao, whatever yeah, you want yeah, to call it. Whatever you want to call it. I found it too, it to be equally in storytelling, but equally in horses and nature. And yeah. I feel like speaking on motherhood, just because um, we haven't really gotten to talk about that on the podcast yet so far. So I just want to hear like, what are your, what do you want to teach Ida or what are the things? Cause I've been thinking about that a lot. And, and, you know, there's so much more, I, I was raised in organized religion and that's so not how I want to raise a child. So yeah, what is, what is, what do you teach her about spirituality? I think, you know, we, what, what both her dad and I have said to her, we've just been really honest about it. You know, I've said that essentially I believe, you know, that there is, there is some force 
of life that surrounds and connects and protects us all. And now I sound like Star Wars, but no, this is, <laughs> that no, is we get so esoteric on here. It's like, yeah, no, you know, I do. And I, um, that I believe that and that I believe that love never dies. I think that mm. is my, there's, you know, energy doesn't die. It transforms. It just I mean that it's, it's physics, it's metaphysics. Yeah. It can't be created or destroyed. Exactly. It can't be created or destroyed. That is what is more kind of transcendently magical. And how do we even wrap our heads around that than that, you know? And so I've talked to her about that love never dies and she's been struggling with mortality for a while. My, um, my maternal grandfather died when Ida was two and a half and she was, we went to see him in hospice in Montreal, right? Just a few days before he died. And I didn't know how she would react, what she would think or make of it. Ida's very She's a very precocious child. She is what I would call an old soul. She is definitely smarter and older than I am, like was born that way. That, that's kind of the deal. Why she chose me, I don't know, but she did. <laughs> so, um, she got, I have never seen anything like it. She just instantly started very gently stroking his face, you know, helping him drink water. She climbed into the hospice bed with him and put her little, Kermit doll in his arms for him to feel comforted. You know, she like just was so gentle and sweet. And when we left, we were getting on a plane um, to go meet her dad in Europe where we were starting a tour. Um, And she had been really quiet about it and I hadn't said anything yet. And we got settled into our seats on the plane and she turned to me and said, we're not going to see grandpa again, are we? She was two and a half. Oh my gosh. You know? And so part of me is like, well, you're closer to the source. Yeah. She, when they like, and that was the, one of the first times where I really felt a mystical kind of hair on my, I mean, not the first, all of being pregnant was like that for me. All of giving birth was like that for me. It was like this both out of body and completely in body, both deeply animalistic. Like I'm a wolf, I'm a whale. Like, and like I'm stardust. And so is she, you know, it was all, it was so intensely (laughs) that, I mean, I sound like a babbling, but that is, I don't know a better way to describe it. It was, it was both of those things. It was like deeply of the earth and it was completely of the stars, you know? And, and I, when she said that to me, it's like, how does a two and a half year old intuit that? Right. What does that mean to her? And, and, and it wasn't until about four months after he had passed. We were visiting um, my uncle David, who is like has become a father figure in my life. I love him dearly, and um, and his wife Barb. And we were visiting them, and he was trying to show Ida chess. And so she's you know almost three by then, and he was talking about the pawns. And well, they you know you kind of sacrifice a pawn, and she just started bawling, like the pawns are going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Grandpa died. We're all going to die. I'm going to have to put my mom in the cold earth. These were the things she was saying. And my uncle, my husband and I had gone out for a run. And so this is happening while we're on the run. My poor uncle's like, Oh my, I don't know what to do. You know, we get back and she's just inconsolable. And it was like, but she started processing death. 
she started processing her own mortality, all of our mortality then. And that's just when she was doing it. You know, and there's all these theories of childhood. Nobody told me to be prepared for that. Nobody told me to be prepared for my three-year-old sobbing over all of our mortality, you know. And what the only true thing that I could say to her was my belief that love never dies. Believe what you will believe. I'm gonna tell you it's naive to be a super lover. Are you a super lover? There's no God of fire and blood. If there's a God, God is lighten this beautiful conversation but we have we should always of, lighten it i know i guess it's good to end. levity well, we, is important but levity is important like maya angelou said you have to laugh and you have to be very yes. serious so yes i feel like we were very serious yeah and now we're gonna laugh a little so we have these <laughs> final questions that we ask everybody okay so um you can only bring three records with you on a deserted oh. island. I know. Sorry. Three is hard. What would they be? Oh, life? that's crushing. <laughs> that's so hard. Brandy Carlisle turned it around on me and I wasn't expecting it. And since that interview, I've literally come up with like a hundred other ones. Oh. So I get it. It's a very hard conversation. It's, but That is really hard. Um only three records. Sure. For like that day. So maybe that makes it easier for you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well. Day one. Day one on the deserted island. It might have to be Tracy Chapman, Tracy Chapman. Cool. Love it. I've like gone back to that record so much lately. It was the first. So that one is very special to me because it was the first time I heard someone who looked like me singing her own songs and I was nine and I had gone to Edmonton Alberta for my uncle David's wedding that never happened because his fiance decided at the last minute that it wasn't the right thing Aww. which it all worked out for the best they've since each married their perfect person and they had kids at the same time with their each their other person very Whoa. anyway that's a whole other thing but my uncle was heartbroken of course and I was sort of kind of understood but didn't really because I was nine and we did a trip through the Canadian Rockies and he played me Tracy Chapman and it blew my mind. I mean, the Rockies, if you've, have you traveled through the Canadian Rockies? No, I, oh. I've only been to Vancouver, but I loved it. I was filming there for like three months and it was gorgeous. I it's love Canada. Beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. And when you go, uh, the next time you go, maybe you'll take a trip, just drive to Calgary or something and go through the Rockies. Yes. And it, it's stunning. And so I just associate it with this sense of freedom, of being away from my, you know, oppressive, terrifying home situation, you know, for two, I think it was two weeks I was out there and it was wow. the most thrilling thing ever. And listening to Tracy Chapman and just being blown away, you know, so yeah. that would be one of them. Um, Fairport Conventions of Legion Leaf is one of my favorite records of all time. Awesome. Sandy Denny is one of my favorite <laughs> awesome. singers of all time. Great. I think that would probably be one of them. And, oh, this is so hard. But maybe um, the Staples singers, the Verve years, that yeah. the, I mean, just though I've gone back and back and back and back and back to that as well. So I guess, yeah. I was just listening to them this morning because I was needing like some sort of, I yeah. actually find it so, them so uplifting. I needed like. Yes. So Mavis to me. 
Oh, and I got, babe. you know, I will say, I getting to hear her, I went last year um, with my band, Birds of Chicago. We went to the Folk Alliance in New Orleans and Mavis spoke. She did this incredible interview with Melissa Block, who's one of my favorite journalists. Amazing. And Melissa Block interviewed Mavis Staples to this packed, you know, hotel kind of ballroom. And it was transformative to listen to her speak. I mean, she, she is the resistance, you know, her existence. She was there. She was at this, she was with her family and Dr. King. She was, she's been through all of it. And how does she, how does she treat the world? She hugs everybody. She beams joy off that stage. They were almost killed more than once. You know, they went through horrific things they've gone through. I can't, you know, she, her inner light, her transcendence, her purposeful centering of joy and love and connectedness, her voice, her writing, her, her lineage, all of it. I mean, she just like Mavis for leader of the world, you know, I mean, just, she's like, I, yeah, so definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Those are the great. Reasons, you know. I love it. <laughs> For Those all are reasons. awesome. Okay. I just love her. That's amazing. We got to sing with her at Newport. Our native daughters did. Wow. We got invited up at the end. It was last summer. We were on our first tour. Um, our native daughters is Rhiannon Giddens, Layla yes. McCalla, Amethyst Key, and I. And I love my sisters. They are part of what helped me um, kind of feel supported and galvanized enough to make a solo record and things like that. But anyway, we got, well, really Rhiannon got invited, but then she said, my sisters are coming too. So we all got to, it was, we, it was Hozier, uh, Phil Cook, Jason Isbell, Preservation Hall, part, part of the Preservation Hall jazz band, um, Janet Weiss on drums from Sleater Kinney. Um, uh, Josh from Wilco on the bass and, uh, and native daughters singing harmonies and Mavis leading us all in eyes on the prize. And I was just like, okay, I can probably, we're, I'm probably good. This is probably the, this is this as is good, good as it's going to get for me. <laughs> this is good, you know? And she hugged all of us. She hugged our, ba- all our kids were on the road with us. So my daughter, Ida, wow. Layla's three kids. She has Delilah, who's just a little younger than Ida, and she has twins. Right, I've seen that on her Instagram. She's she's a goddess. She is. She is the strongest warrior I know. Like she's unreal. So her three kids, and then Rhiannon's two who are older, Ifa, who just turned eleven, and um, Quivine, who is a year older than Ida, and Mavis gave each of them like just this attention and this love, and we all. I mean, my favorite moment was actually before we were on stage, we were all jammed into Hozier's little trailer. He was like, we can rehearse in my trailer. And, you know, and she's coming like, oh, my Hosey, I'm wearing my earrings Hosey gave me. And it's oh, like, my God. Just, just act normal. Just pretend it's fine. You're not, you're not. <laughs> don't be weird. You know, <laughs> just, oh my just sing and don't be a weirdo. But it was so beautiful. And Phil Cook leading us all, like his choir directing brilliance you know leading us all in this song like okay and you girls come and sing on this part and it was oh my just god heaven it was absolute heaven and she was so gracious with all of us um and and with everybody she just spreads joy wherever she goes you know That's... hugs every volunteer treats everyone like mm. kings and queens 
You yeah. know, she doesn't, she, there's not a hierarchical bone in her body. And it was just, just pure love and pure spirit just beaming forth. And it transforms yeah. everyone that it touches, you know? Well, you're so, like that. Yeah. And our native daughters is like that. Yeah. I did a deep dive on the YouTube Smithsonian Folkways. If you're listening and you go on YouTube, Smithsonian Folkways did a whole behind the scenes of them recording. And I've been listening to the album and it's, Oh, I can't wait for music to come back to live performance after the pandemic and I can come hear you guys live because oh. you're you're doing the same thing as the Staples singers. I mean, you oh. all of you women are leading the movement just like her and radiating that joy and that history and that honesty and that authenticity and that power. So that is so sweet. (laughs) I truly like I just I'm hearing you talk about Mavis and I'm like, yeah, you're on stage and you're getting chills, but you're also leading the next generation of the movement. Mm. You're part of the arc of Martin Luther King, you know, like you're right. The arc arc, towards the long arc to justice and equality. equality. (laughs) (laughs) We are getting there. Okay. We're going to get there and you're going to lead it. It's going to be amazing. Uh, okay, this uh, is a silly question. It's called the Dolly question. I love Dolly Parton, so oh, every episode. Yes, who doesn't? I know. Who doesn't? Every episode we have a true or false or just like a Dolly trivia question. Ooh, so uh-oh. Uh-oh. yours is kind of nerdy. Like it's been, I've had to do a lot of this Dolly trivia and I'm like, am I going to run out of tr- Dolly trivia to ask people? But um, Her life is so vast and expensive so vast. and amazing. You, I know. How could you ever run out? Yeah. Okay. So true or false? Actually, I feel like this is good. This is a good question I picked for you because of our sisterhood and your sisterhood with every woman that you lift up. So true or false? Dolly Parton's best friend is still her same best friend from third grade. True. True. Julie Ogle and Dolly said, I've been with her through thick and thin. And oh. they keep, they are still best friends. Oh, Isn't that I so? I love that so know. much. Me too. I love that so much. And it oh, probably means so much to Dolly to still have someone who knew her back then. You know what I mean? Yes. Like that far back. When, yes. Yeah. Where you're just each other's, you know, where, because of course she's such an icon and she's such a, almost an institution, you know, Absolutely. where, where it, I'm sure she gets treated like a, not like a regular person Human, by a lot right. of folks, right? Like, and, 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 and that's understandable because she's so larger than life and everything in our, but of course that makes so much I sense know. to have your friend that just gets you, you know? Yes. Just, yeah. And knew her oh. in her coat of many colors, like when she was little. I know. So I love it. Amazing. <gasps> I love that. Uh, okay. Final question. And if you don't mind, will you close your eyes? Okay. Okay. This is called the blank room exercise. So go into a blank room. What are you hearing? I'm hearing a waterfall. Mm. What are you smelling? I'm smelling wet jasmine. I love jasmine. What are you tasting? I'm tasting delicious, almost overripe mango. What are you touching? I am touching kind of a soft moss. I don't know why it's in the room, but it is. Cool. (laughs) I love moss, actually. There's a great book on moss, side note, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. If you're really into moss, you should read it. It's amazing. I want to read that. I'm super into moss. Okay, cool. (laughs) Um, 
this is why we're friends <laughs> now. I'm just going to say it. Okay, and last question, but I ruined the zen, but what are oh, you sorry, seeing? Sorry. When am I what? What are you seeing? Oh, I am seeing a small caterpillar inching along on the moss, and it's kind of blue with brilliant yellow zigzags on its back. <gasps> is it going to turn into a butterfly? I, I hope so. It's going to be spectacular. <laughs> Yay. Oh, thank you so much, Allison. This is amazing. I feel like I could talk it's to you all day. I feel the same way about you, Beth. Like, really, we've got it. Well, it, we will when this all starts to find its find groove and we groove. start to be able to find yes. our way back to little gatherings at least. Yes. Um, yeah. I feel that our time is not yet through. Wow. Wasn't Ellison so powerful? Man, I still think about this interview. And when she says that she teaches her daughter love never dies, that is something that has stuck with me since this interview that I think about a lot and that makes me feel like everything in 2020 is going to be okay because love never dies. If you want to find out more about Alison Russell and her beautiful music and poetry and everything she puts out into this universe that is so impactful, please follow her at Alison Russell Music on Instagram. And I just want to say a special thank you to Alison for creating the music for this podcast. It's always felt so perfect and special. And she captured immediately the vibe and mood and feeling of what I wanted for harmonics. This episode of Harmonics was produced and edited by Chris Jacobs and is only possible with the superb leadership of executive producer Amy Reitenauer Jacobs and the entire team over at The Bluegrass Situation. I'm your host, Beth Bears. Until next time, always remember that creativity is healing and healing is creative. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.